Okay, I'm going to do something totally different than I didn't do in the first service, and, and, uh, and if it doesn't work, then forgive me, okay? Um, because I, I, sometimes people don't always understand that the story of the Bible is the singular story. That is to say, when, when, when God created man in Genesis chapter 1, he came to him and he said, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise the benevolent dominion over it. That was his command, fill the earth with the family. Of course, that, 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 that was broken. But God came again to Abraham in a broken world. He said essentially the same thing. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And I promise that I will bless all the families of the earth through you. It's the same basic mandate, only this time it was a promise. I promise that the, the families of the earth will be filled and blessed through you. And you get into the New Testament, and God provides in the person of Jesus the foundation of a new family and the fulfillment of that original mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the whole idea of Jesus ascending a cross and giving his life um, and then rising again was to lay the foundation so that what was originally promised and mandated in Genesis 1 would be fulfilled. That is, he would provide a basis for atonement and forgiveness, righteousness, and he would also, through the cross, provide life, his spirit indwelling his people. And so, understood in that light, get to Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority has been granted to me, therefore go out and make disciples of all nations. That's his way of saying, people, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. By the time you get to the, the end of the Bible, you see a new creation um, inhabited by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all paid for by the blood of Jesus, the fulfillment of Genesis 1. This is one story about God recovering his original purpose for mankind, only laying the foundation for this great purpose in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you and I are part of that. And it kind of maybe gives you an idea as to just how important the idea of this massive family is that the Lord is constructing and building and has been through hundreds of years, laid on the foundation, the cornerstone of, of Jesus Christ who came to make that people a reality. And that foundation is exactly what, what the Apostle Paul has been laying for us so that we don't forget that the foundation of, of the new people of God, the foundation of the true family, the foundation of the church has been laid in the performance of Jesus, perfect performance on our behalf. That that foundation has been laid when he gave his life to clear us of all of our crime, criminal activity and all, everything against us and nailing it to the cross. And that he has provided the foundation by giving us his own spirit in our hearts, a new heart so that we actually want to be his people. That's the foundation of the gospel that Paul has laid out for us in Galatians 1 through 5. But it's part of that huge story, you know, and you never can lose sight of that foundation because it's upon that that we're built, and it's upon that that we find the basis of a new motivation and what it means to be a new community, what God um, uh, loves and desires so much for us to be family. Well, beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, Paul gets very practical. But I don't want us to miss the fact that he, he, he gives us the practical based upon this foundation, and it shouldn't be understood or separated from it. 
That is, what he is going to give to us, and we're going to look at three instructions this morning that he gives in verses 1 through 5. He gives us three instructions that show us what a new spirit-inhabited, um, gospel-saturated family does, what it looks like. All right? Three instructions. Now, mind you, Paul is not laying down a brand new law for us as if we have to keep these three things in order to be accepted by God. That would completely di- di- dissect chapter 6 from all the chapters below. What he's doing is offering us practical instructions for how the, the gospel works itself out, how the spirit works in community, uh, or what a spirit-walking community looks like. Now, um, we oftentimes think of, and we sang it just a few minutes ago, that there's power in the name of Jesus, um, which is a great song, but we tend to individualize that because of our, our culture, and so we think just me and Jesus and the power of, of sin and the chains of sin are going to be broken just between me and him. And while it is true in some sense, the fact of the matter is that we walk in and by the Spirit as a family. And the power to break those chains is experienced in family. Not in isolation, but in family, because it's that important. And I think you're going to see that in what um, Paul is going to give us here. But before I talk about those three things, um, I want to address an assumption that's not stated here that I believe needs to be stated for our current context. That is, Paul assumes in writing to these people that they're connected, that they're, they're already a family. That is, they, 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 they know each other, they have relationships with each other, they consider themselves brothers and sisters. That is, he, he, he assumes that they are already operating as a, as a family. They know each other, they're connected to each other. And there are some in this room who, who have that. That is, um, you're connected. You have people that you consider close brothers and sisters in this room. Maybe you're in a small group together, or maybe you go on vacation together. There's people that you can trust, confide in, confess to. They're the kind of people who know when, when you're sick that they'll bring a meal over or vice versa. Or when you're down, they'll give you a call and encourage you. There are people in this room who are connected like that. And that's what Paul is assuming. You can't practice what he's about to give if there's no connection with the family. And if that's you, if you're in that place where you have those connections, those relationships where you can confide and encourage and, and help each other, well, then you're in a good place. That's what Paul is assuming is happening. If you happen to be new and you're trying to break into that, I just encourage you to keep going. It takes a while to form trust relationships that you can you know, depend upon and, and kind of do our best to make sure that we provide avenues of connection. But, but it's very important for you to be connected into the body. But, and the reason I wanted to state this assumption outright is that there are some who have the mistaken view that... Being the church means attending a weekly event. That is, some think that being the church means attending a weekly event. As you come, you sing, you pray, listen to songs, um, hear a message, and then you go home and that's church. Now that's some of what the church does, but that in and of itself is not the church. The church is not an event we attend. It is a family we belong to. 
And the difference between those two is huge. And so if that's your thinking, that, hey, I can come and just attend and remain disconnected and not be a family, well, that's not church. And there's no power in that. The power is in the spirit-inhabited family. So the simple point of what I'm going to say, I'll be done with here, is just you've got to be connected. That's what Paul is assuming to each other. Okay, end of the little mini pre-sermon. Now, now if, if that's the reality, if, the, if you're connected, this is how a gospel-saturated family looks. And he's going to give three instructions. Uh, two that deal with a negative or burdens, and one that deals with success. How we're supposed to relate to each other with burdens and success. The first one, maybe you're familiar with it, if you're new to the church idea, um, then this might be somewhat news to you. Um, for those of us who have been Christians a long time, it's not. But the first instruction he gives, or if you will, a manifestation of the Spirit's work in the body, is... Um, that a gospel-saturated family works to restore a fallen brother or sister gently and humbly. That is someone who stumbled into sin. He writes, verse 1, brothers. He's not being a sexist here. He doesn't mean just the men. He means shorthand for family. Family is talking to you. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is, has the spirit, um, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now, in light of what was said last week, and if you weren't here, chapter 5 kind of ended with the fact that, that we as believers still have this thing called the flesh in us, as well as this new heart or the spirit in us. And he goes on to tell us that they are in um, an antagonistically opposite, opposite from one another. Which means that short of our death or the resurrection or the coming of Jesus... Um, we're going to continue to struggle with sin as, as believers. And there's, it's, it's inevitable that we're going to stumble and fall. And so he's given us instructions. What does a gospel-saturated, um, spirit-inhabited church do when members fall? And, and members fall every day. But Paul's speaking specifically of a kind of fall that's very hard to get out of. He's not talking about what you might consider kind of your daily sin when, you know, you're driving down the road and your wife yells at you to take a left and you yell, look at her and you say, you know, stop telling me how to drive. And, you know, you're barking at each other and you realize it and you say, I'm sorry, sweetheart. She's, I'm sorry, too. Well, that's not what he has in view. Those are the kind of sins that we hopefully keep short accounts on every day. You know, Gloria said that, I shouldn't have said that. In particular, he's viewing a kind of sin or trespass, maybe something from the list of the works of the flesh, that once you get in it, it's very difficult to get out of. So he says caught doesn't mean, you know, he got, oh, I found, found out that you were sleeping with somebody. That's not what he's talking about. He's caught, talking about being entrapped. He's talking about being caught in something like a, getting caught in quicksand and you can't get out by yourself or you're a bird caught in a net and it just cannot untangle itself. It needs help. There are the kinds of, of trespasses and sins that can just entrap you and you can't get out by yourself. That's why I said, you know, hold the power. There's power in the name of Jesus. Break every chain. Well, sometimes that chain can't be broken by just you and Jesus. It's Jesus and his spirit in the community helping you. That's what he says. If anyone is caught, trapped, can't get out of a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. That is, you're going to work 
to bring that person out of that entrapped position. And you and I could probably create a list of, of the kinds of entrapping sins that, that, that are hard to get out of. Um, when people get tangled up in lies, very hard to get out of. King David um, was tangled up in a huge lie. And it took the prophet Nathan coming to him and saying, David, you're the man in my story to break that chain. Um, lies, inappropriate romantic relationships, affairs, um, addictions, pornography and alcohol or drugs, um, a, an embittered heart of unforgiveness. Some of those things are very, very difficult. Yeah. And he's instructing us. Um, when when that you see your brother like, like in quicksand and he can't get out, it's the loving thing to do. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's desire in your life to not just walk by him, but, but actually to, to help restore. And that, that idea of restore, it actually, you know, is used in other places, the verb, to, uh, to set a bone back in place. You know, it's painful. Sometimes it takes a, pr- a long process for that bone to heal, but the idea is that it's brought back to its full strength when it's done. And that's our aim, is when that happens, when you as a, as a brother or sister find somebody who you're connected with um, and trapped, that's, that's your aim, bring them back to fully restored, full strength again. That's, that's what we want to do with each other, all right? Not half restored, but actually we want them to be fully and completely restored. And I, I think that fully and completely restored is an important little point because sometimes there are sins in the body of Christ that we don't think are restorable. That is, you can only be halfway restored. A notable example of that, though I don't think it's so much that anymore, is, is people who have went through the horrors of divorce only to find themselves branded in the church and made to feel like second-rate citizens because they were that D on their chest. If, if they're made to feel like second-rate, that's not fully restored. Fully restored is like, listen, you are fully restored. And that's our aim, and that's what we're supposed to do for each other. But you'll notice, it's not just the work that's important, it's the process and how you do it. Paul goes on here to tell us we're supposed to have a particular manner and attitude with which we approach somebody that we know and love and want to help. Um, Both gentleness and also a sense of sobriety. And I'll tell you why he says that. Because you know what happens when someone um, does something horribly wrong like a sin? It almost always damages other people. And when it damages other people, you know what the response is? It's anger. You find out that a friend of yours has has, uh, left his wife and kids or somebody else. What does it make you feel to see the damage? Takes you off. That's what it does. And in some sense, it should. Sin causes anger. It causes anger in the Lord, and it should cause anger in the righteous heart. And so that's why I think, listen, he says, listen, if you're going to approach this, you're not going to approach it from a vantage point of frustration and anger, because if you do, you're going to be harsh, and you're going to come across self righteous. You know? So it's like, I don't know if you've ever heard a parent talking to a kid after he's totally screwed up, but uh, sometimes it's, it can be a little harsh and heavy-handed, like, you know, like, what in the world were you thinking? 
Like not in a thousand years, in a million generations, would I have ever thought of doing that. It's the biggest boneheaded move I've ever seen in my entire life. Now most of us wouldn't talk to our kids that way using those words, but we do with the tongue, which communicates kind of the same thing, harsh. And it is neither gentle, and it will come across as, as you know, self-righteous. And it leaves the person receiving it melting into a puddle of worthlessness. That's not the way Jesus approached people in simple situations. As angry as you may be at the situation, he says, come gently. And then watch yourself. And um, lest you too be tempted is to recognize, you know, each and every one in this room um, is just like two inches away from really screwing up. All you need is the right place, the right weakness, the right time, and the wrong things. And if you think you stand on your own, you can, in a moment, slip beneath the waves and stumble and fall. Find yourself in the same quicksand. So you're saying, keep watch over your heart. Recognize that you walk with the same sinful impulses as that person, and within a flick, you could be there too. That means we come when we exercise this gently and with that sense of sober um, self-awareness of my our own frailties, um, knowing that we too are, are sinful people. But that's how we're supposed to deal with somebody who has who has fallen in love. And somebody who doesn't respond gently or with a sense of that sober humility um, has forgotten his own sinfulness and he's forgotten, he's forgotten that Jesus didn't come down and beat us with a stick when we were stuck and we were caught in our trespasses. He didn't beat us with a stick. He hung on a stick. And, and he bore up underneath. And you look at the way he treats a woman at the well in John 4 or Zacchaeus, and you realize this was a gentle shepherd who had to die for his people. And when that it dominates your heart, what Jesus has done, it allows you to act this way. That's what I, why I said that a, a gospel-saturated, spirit-saturated community um, is going to treat each other this way. Not judgmentally and not harshly but you're going to want to see full restoration. So that's one. And by the way, I can't underscore this enough. This little instruction is not for pastors. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's for Christians. When he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, he's not talking about the people who are wearing capes, who are kind of like the superstars of the Christian, like the, the really spiritual people. Paul uses the word spiritual. He simply means those who have the spirit and are walking by the spirit. That means the onus of caring for a brother or sister that God has placed in our lives is on everyone in this room who claims the name of Jesus. And you shouldn't walk by. You don't have to look at your pastor before you, you have the conversation. You, you have the spirit in you. Um, this is how you are supposed to function in our body, in our family. Because that's what family does, all right? Number two, he switches from the rather narrow, bearing the burden of someone else's sin for the sake of restoration, um, to a more broad category, and that is the burden of life itself. Uh, life, as you know it, is, is, uh, is good on the one hand, and yet it is amazingly hard on the other. That is, um, a gospel-saturated family 
um, shares together the burden of life. That's verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. This is just more general, the things that happen in life that are hard. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That is the law of love, the spirit that's working out that fruit in your life. Bearing one another's burdens more generally. That's shouldering it, you know, standing arm in arm and, and not allowing a person to experience that weight of oppression all by themselves. And I was thinking through um, all the different things that, that go on in a family. Like Parkway. We know that God is good in all things, and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But that doesn't mean that life isn't incredibly hard for different people at different times. You know, I mean, last year we've lost lots of people. We've lost friends, brothers, sisters, children. People have lost jobs, lost their homes. People are fighting cancer. People have lost the fight to cancer. People have been in oppressive um, employment situations. Um, spouses have cheated on spouses. Marriages have broken apart. And all that stuff. When you're going through it, it's heavy. It's like this massive weight pressing down on your soul. And the thing is, is, is in the family, you were never meant to bear no love. I was never meant to bear it alone either. Family's there to bear the burden together. And the truest, healthiest sense of family bears those things together. Even, even a, just your basic good family does those kinds of things. Father shouldering the burdens of a son who's having a difficult time making it through school. Mother, you know, sharing the burden of, of a husband who's having a difficult day at work. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what family does. And Paul's just saying, this is how you're supposed to help each other. Bear, bear, bear up... Um, that, that, that burden, not in a way that creates codependence, but in a way that restores and brings back to, to full health. But again, I want to drop back to the motivation here because that's really important. There's a lot of good people in the world who aren't Christians who like to bear burdens. They like to help. But I'd like to argue that it comes from a different motivation. You know, there's a, there's a desire in, in every human heart to... Uh, to be the hero, you know? When someone needs help, the fleshly part of the heart can say, hey, I can provide for that, and if I provide for that, you know what that person's gonna think of me? They're gonna think I'm the hero. In fact, I have a friend who teases me all the time. It's like, if there's something I get to do and I do it, he's like, oh, you're always playing the hero, you know? The hero gets the glory. The hero gets exalted. The hero gets praised. It's very easy to shoulder the burden of something when you come out looking like Superman on the other side. And that can be the fleshly motivation for bearing up someone else's burden. It's very much about you. It's very proud and prideful. The opposite of where true Christian motivation comes from. So I'd like to argue that the, the, the motive for bearing up a brother or sister in their state of oppression and pain isn't that you will be the hero. Your motivation comes from the fact that you have experienced rather deeply the saving power of a greater hero. It's like, man, this is what the, like, the Lord has saved me, and he's going to save me in every way possible. And, and my life that I live in service to you is not lived so you'll see me and go, you're the hero. It's lived in service to him so that they will see 
him through me and know that he's the hero and I'm just nothing but a piece of flesh and without him I'm nothing. That's a completely different motivation. That is a gospel-oriented motivation. Not, I want to be the hero. It's like, I just want people to see Jesus as the hero. And so I come here in his name. I bear up uh, with his strength so that I can testify to his grace. That's, that's a completely different motivation. That's what's supposed to motivate us. That's again, you see how important the saturation of the gospel in a family is so that those motivations are what drive us rather than the flesh. So that we would want to be the hero and get the glory and we want him to be the hero and get the glory. But notice there's, there's a, a really important um, statement that he makes in verse 3 that I think just hits the nail on the head as to what frustrates um, Lovingly carrying another's burden. What gets in the way of, of a spirit-filled, gospel-saturated family? And that's verse 3. It says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Notice at the beginning of verse 3, there's a 4. That connects us to verse 2. It's, it's one thought. And I think what he's saying is that, you know, as long as you're not thinking more about yourself than is real, then you're going to be able to bear one another's burdens. But verse 3 hinders verse 2. If you're self-absorbed and you're putting yourself first, thinking more of yourself, you're not going to see people's needs and you're not going to have a heart to bear up under them. That is to say that this whole old enemy of pride and arrogance of self-absorption is actually um, frustrates and counteracts um, what a true family should be. Now let me dig that a little bit deeper for us. Because it's easy to think, well, that whole pride thing is just like, like it's, it's like a big billboard sign. You can see it anywhere. It's like, wow, that's pride. I don't want to have that. Let me just say it's far more subtle and we're far more blind to it. Let me give you a couple of examples. We live in a very uh, agenda-driven kind of culture. And uh, I will admit that I wake up in the morning and I have a series of things that come through my mind as to what I want to accomplish today. So these aren't necessarily my agenda, but let me paint an agenda for you. Wake up in the morning and think, all right, got to get my cup of coffee. Then I'm going to spend a half hour, 45 minutes reading the scripture and praying. After that, I'm going to make some sandwiches, and then I'm going to get the kids up, and then I'm going to drive them off to school. And after that, I'm going to stop by the grocery store because we're having people over later in the evening, so I want to get the food for the for the meal. Um, and then I have a sprinkler that's broken in my front yard. It's hot out. Grass is going to dry. So I'm going to stop by Home Depot and pick up a sprinkler. I'm going to go back to the house and fix the sprinkler. And those are the kind of things that you think of through the day. It's like, I'm going to get all this stuff done so that at the end of the day, you'll be completely tired and yep, feel satisfied that you so much. Let's just say, midway through the day, you get a call on your cell phone. And you pull it out, and there's caller ID, and it's a name, and you know the name. <laughs> and the person who's calling you, you know, is struggling and wants to talk. And I, I know this happens to you, because it happens to me. There is a decisive moment when you're feeling the buzz of your phone and you're looking at that name and you realize that if you do a little swipey thing, that it's going to be at least a 45-minute conversation, if not an hour. And your agenda goes through your head, most of which isn't necessary. And you're thinking, if I do this 45-minute hour conversation, which I know this is going to be, uh, I'm not going to make the home depot, and then I'm not going to make it back, and I'm not going to have time to blah, 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 blah. You're weighing in this moment 
your personal agenda, most of which is unnecessary. Now, there are times in which you have to send people to voicemail versus someone who has not Who's going to come first? You're going to click that little button on the top of your iPhone, send them, or are you going to say, okay, right now the Spirit wants me to bear burden. And so this agenda, I'm moving off to the side, and I'm going to take this call. Now, now, I'm just asking, isn't the priority of one's own personal agenda a form of self-absorption, a form of pride? And if that's the case, you see how, how easy it is to, for verse 3 to be true. It's putting yourself first that gets in the way. Here's another scenario, and, and guys are going to hate me for this one. You come home at the end of the day, and your office has been filled with all kinds of pressures and conflicts and trying to get stuff done, bad news. And you come in, and your head's just full of your own stuff. You sit down at the, at the um, kitchen table, and, and your wife sits down with you, and, and she starts to tell you about your son's difficulty with math in class. And she's telling you about a burden she's bearing. Well, she's talking, and it sounds a little bit like the teacher, um, uh, Charlie Brown, you know, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, you're looking at her, and you're nodding your head, you know, like you've learned to do. Your eyes are glazed over, and it's really clear you're not really tracking with her. You're thinking about your work and everything you have to do, and, and then finally, because your wife knows you well enough, she sees the glazed over look, she says, you're not listening to me, are you? You're like, what? 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 And then you try and fabricate some kind of a lie and catch back up like 20 minutes ago. And you're something about school. And she calls you out. And you know what? At that moment, she does not feel loved. And she does not feel like you share her burden. Why? Because in your mind, you're number one. Isn't that a, a form of verse three? Thinking of yourself first and what's your problems or your biggest problems. And you're not able to see, see how, how, how putting yourself first actually. In, creates a barrier to us being able to both hear, understand, feel compassion, and then bear up another burden for the one who's supposed to help. But okay, let's flip, flip it a little bit because it's true on the other side too. The person who needs help is oftentimes too ashamed um, to ask for help, especially when what they're struggling with has any sense of shame attached to it. So, for example, a, a young couple who get married and they're trying to work it out, but they realize this just isn't working. What do we do? And they feel too embarrassed to say anything to anybody because, heaven forbid, anybody acknowledges that they have struggles in their marriage. And so instead, they just keep it hidden until it gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, by the time it comes out and the lie is exposed, it's too late. Now, I ask the question, but what is it that keeps a person on the flip side of giving help from asking them for help. Isn't it the same thing? It's just too proud to admit we're having problems. Pride gets in the way of being served. It messes up the whole thing. The gospel, however, gives us the courage and strength to be who we really are and to acknowledge I have fights with my wife sometimes. Um, that doesn't that doesn't make me any less worthy of God's love than if I never follow my wife. 
because I am who I am in Jesus, period. And how well I'm doing, either at my job or my marriage, does not ultimately define who I am. And that gospel enables us actually to be honest with each other and ask for help. You see, the gospel motivates both sides to bear the burden because God the hero first bore ours, and also to be able to be honest because he already bore those struggles too. That's what the gospel does. The spirit does in our lives. And that's our responsibility as family. And that's what happens. The gospel takes root as we start bearing each other's burdens from a different motivation. And we start being honest with each other. Hey, I need some help. Um, I'm not going to stand on my platform with deception and make you think I'm not somebody that I really am not. See? That's number two. And then, is that, is that clear? <laughs> Probably gets in the way. Just nail it. Right on. And the last one doesn't so much deal with the burdens of life, either a guy who's fallen into sin or, or somebody um, who's just oppressed by life itself, but um, it seems that it deals with how we view successes of grace. Verse 4 reads, But let each one test his own work. In other words, you're not supposed to test the work of others. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one, or each will have to bear his own load. And I think boiled down what this means is that a gospel-saturated family or life doesn't live based upon comparison. The reason I say that I think this is a, a positive um, success of grace is because of what he says in the first line. But let each one test his own work. I think these are probably works of love, works of grace, of, of how God's moving in your life. Um, how you've met another person's need or borne up under their burden. Whatever it is, it's work. It's the spiritual work in and through you, the work of grace. And he's saying, listen, when it comes to this kind of stuff, you examine your own stuff. Don't be getting in other people's business. Don't compare what you're doing to what other people are doing. Uh, you look at what God's doing in your life, and you can, you can boast in that. And what he means by boast isn't the negative, arrogant boast. It, it's like what we mean when we see our kid play a really good baseball game and say, man, you made me so proud. It doesn't mean you're proud. It means I'm so happy that you're doing so well. He's saying just rejoice and be grateful for what God is doing in your life. And that's your responsibility. That's what you bear at your birth. Not this comparative living stuff. And that, that's just, that just jacks up churches, people. When, you know, you're, you're looking at somebody else's life and and maybe there's just an amazing prayer person. And you're like, man, never be like her. Feel like a complete loser next to that person. Well, not supposed to do that. Um, or you look at somebody else who's maybe not as smart as you, isn't really getting the Bible as well. And you think, well, I'm getting somewhere. Because I, I kind of know what the Bible is. Either way, you've reverted back to the subtle form of social legalism where you're defeated if there's someone who's doing something better than you and then you're feeling superior if somebody's doing worse than you and Paul says that's not how the family works. Because you know what? The gospel tells us that each and every one in here is God's special workmanship. Uh, you are his workmanship, created uniquely in Christ Jesus with a very specific path of works that he has determined beforehand that you should fulfill them. 
And there's going to be people, people who do amazing volumes of work and other people who do smaller volumes of work. And you know what? That's okay. Because we're not supposed to be living in comparison with one another. Rather, we're supposed to keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus and what he's done for us and allow the Spirit to move in our lives and give thanks when he uses us um, to help someone else out of sin or to um, bear the burden of another person. It's, it's, it's his, his work. And um, so I encourage you, if you're discouraged this morning because you see people that are farther ahead than you, stop comparing yourself. And if there's other people who are farther behind you, 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 you don't compare yourself. God's, God's got people right wherever he has them, if there is. And, um, and we can take comfort in that fact stop living in this kind of messed up form of social slavery by living by comparison. So that's that's Paul's kind of three, lays out three um, instructions of what a family looks like when, when the gospel of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and who we are in him, when it really takes root. And then he gives us these instructions so we'll remember this is how it works itself out. And these, all of these three things, they're not just for me, they're for everybody in this room. And to live by the Spirit this kind of life. And I'll tell you what, when this is happening, the Spirit's moving. And people see a different kind of place. They don't compare each other. That's a refreshing thing. They actually come to each other without expectation of each other. That's refreshing. They actually care without judging anybody about a person being, being caught. That's that's what we want to be here at our church family. And I hope you're praying for that and you want that in your soul, um, in your family, in our family, in the big part of your family. Amen? Amen? Lord, I thank you for your kindness and I thank you for your word and I pray that it would take root, that these wouldn't simply be words that we hear on Sunday and throw away on Monday, but they would be words that find uh, ground, fertile ground in our hearts and that we would see them take root and, and uh, flourish with um, love and joy and peace and uh, what it means really truly to be a family in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit in His name. Amen.